This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. It's a big, in-depth story from the free press. The Autism Surge, Lies, Conspiracies, and My Own Kids. Rates of autism are skyrocketing. The question isn't just why, but what we need to do about it right now and what's holding us back. Are there some religion ghosts lurking in this story about autism rates? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So this free press piece on autism is a very charged first-person piece, and we normally don't talk about this kind of news feature. Why do you think there's a Get Religion ghost in this one? Well, we'll start with the fact that it's very clear there are all kinds of news stories embedded in in this topic and in this particular piece. So we start off there. I mean, there's a lot of news to talk about in this piece. Now, the term I want to remind our listeners about is theodicy. Theodicy is the putting God on trial for the existence of evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And when I read this piece, well, I thought of all kinds of things. I've been wrestling with it now for a couple of weeks. And I immediately remembered an Academy Award-winning movie from decades ago about deafness. And the name of the movie was Children of a Lesser God. And to some degree, that's what this story is all about. Even though the God card is not played, but the suffering card just hits you right in the face. I'm reminded of a chapter in a book by one of my dear friends, Frederica Matthews Green, wrote a book when she said, you know, a lot of people suffer doubt or they, they wrestle with God and God's creation when facing things like hurricanes or earthquakes or cancer. She said for her, in her own life, the the issue that has always hit her the hardest is autism. And trying to understand the origins of this kind of mental, a pain that is clearly mental and psychological, yet it also has physical sources, but we don't know why or how. And then you get into the sharp increase in the the number of cases these are. I, I wrote up a, a list and and just listeners listen to these questions. How many of you have a child who is somewhere on the autism spectrum? How many of you know someone closely with a child who has severe or profound autism? How many of you know someone whose educational plans and their family budget have been affected by autism. And by the way, we can get into the fact that this kind of education and care often takes religious school options out of the hands of families. 
How many of our listeners know someone who has lost their faith or know someone whose child has lost his or her faith because of questions raised by autism? When you listen to those questions, I think you can see that I think that any complete coverage of autism not only has to raise moral and even theological issues, at the very least religious issues, but inevitably, if we're going to deal with autism in our culture, a culture in which religious nonprofits and religious institutions play such a crucial role in education, medical care, mental health issues, etc. At some point, this crisis is going to end up on the front step of our churches and religious institutions if it's not there already. So what are the numbers that have sparked so much curiosity oh, and in some cases alarm? The author of this book is an attorney who is a mother who left her career because she has two children with profound autism of varying degrees. Her name is Jill Isher, and she is now the president of the National Council on Severe Autism. And the piece we're discussing that ran at the Free Press, and it's a perfect example of a piece that has made the Free Press in its one or two years of existence such a crucial forum in the world of journalism in America, founded by the controversial writer Barry Weiss, who left the New York Times in a battle over publishing an article about rioting and how police and military troops should be used in putting down riots. She ran this piece, which basically 60% of Americans would agree with the position, and it created a firestorm at the New York Times, and she ended up resigning her position. She is what I would call an old-school liberal, a married lesbian of very liberal cultural views, but she's comfortable publishing pieces that make both sides angry or upset or at the very least mystified on issues related to vaccines and crime and race and religion and all kinds of things. So that's where this story ran. And Jill Isher, after writing a lot about her own case, does what you would expect in a great journalism piece. She just hits you with four paragraphs, which I can't afford to read them all. But let me just read a couple of sentences here. Childhood data from earlier generations show that autism barely registered as a blip. For example, a massive and landmark study of children born from 1958 to 1965 found the rate of autism in seven-year-old children to be 0.0466%. Or 0.066% when using a broader definition. Jumping a bit, compare that to the CDC's walloping finding today that 0.5%, almost half of 1%, of U.S. children have profound autism with IQs under 50 who are nonverbal or minimally verbal. CDC data also shows that in just over 12 years, Autism increased across all categories of intellectual functioning. For cases with intellectual disability, IQ 70 and under, the prevalence more than doubled. 
And then when you get elsewhere on the spectrum, the numbers just get huger and huger. And so that's the, the cultural hook for this story. Of course, it turns into politics with everybody wanting to argue about vaccines. And by the way, I'm not sure I agree completely with this article's take on what the controversial Democrat Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has said about vaccines, but that's not what made me interested in this story. The key here is there's going to continue to be a cultural reckoning on this. And the fact that at this point, because of the fraught politics of autism, we can't even discuss whether autism might be prevented, whether there might be a cause that's affected by anything from the environment to big pharmacy to aging parents, larger numbers of parents today having children in advanced years in their life, like say having babies after the age of 40 or something like that. So there's all kinds of questions and looming over it all is, why is this happening? Where is this coming from? And I once heard a man who's now a cardinal in Rome say that in all of his years as a confessor, the lack of ability to have children is the single most challenging and painful spiritual reality that breaks people's personalities, their marriages, and breaks their faith. I would have to think at this point, autism is beginning to slide into that slot in the life and the crises that a lot of pastors end up dealing with. So Terry, where are the religion ghosts in this story? Well, essentially, I asked it a second ago when I said, what should the church do? What should the church do in response to this crisis? And I think you would agree that Whatever the church does or doesn't do creates either a positive or a negative story or some combination of both. If a reporter showed up at your front door of your church and said, what are you doing to help families with children with autism? What would the typical pastor just say? I mean, you, you, you get into to this opening question. I have several friends with children who are on the spectrum, in several cases, quite severe to one degree or another. And I've heard them tell stories of walking in the door of churches with their child and getting halfway through the service and saying, we're not going to be able to attend this church. I mean, we can just tell by the way we were greeted. We can tell by the atmosphere of people around us this isn't going to work. I've heard other people say that they walked into a church, saw with their own eyes that there were other families with autistic children and saw them being embraced and welcomed and even in some way involved in the service. And they immediately thought, this church gets it. So th there's a lot of things that come out of that basic reality. What would an autism or a spectrum ministry look like. We can also ask whether children would thrive in all kinds of churches. Would children thrive in, in a service that to some degree is like a loud rock concert with a sermon that has a tremendous amount of 
video material coming with it and jokes and humor? Or would children do better in a service that's quieter, more meditative, and kind of has lots of repeated form and material and imagery that they might be able to accept over time? Although I've been in churches with profoundly autistic children that it was clear that there was nothing you could have done, that on certain days they were just going to not be able to control themselves. And when a child reaches, in one case that I knew of, the child was like six foot three and weighed 270 pounds. That's not an easy situation to deal with. Well, is the church ready to deal with that? What should the churches do? Does this affect Christian education? Does a church that wants to be spectrum friendly need to have options for these children? What if a church offers daycare? Can a church afford to take on the legal and financial challenges of running a daycare for children that would include autism? And someday, the future in the Free Press article does a great job of painting this, what are the future implications, both for the care of parents who thought their children were going to be able to help take care of them, and then the children themselves as they age, and in some cases have no potential for any type of career that might give them what we would normally think of as a stable life. Another one, and this for Missouri Synod Lutherans, this will hit close to home. What are religious schools supposed to do? I know a lot of situations where people have wanted to send their children to Christian schools, but the Christian schools could not financially handle the cost of doing special education for children with severe special needs. And at the same time, those schools couldn't qualify for state dollars because they're a private Christian school and they're not willing to accept some of the, shall we say, the doctrines of the state. And while we think about that for a second, surely many of our listeners have read stories about the role that autism is playing now and children who are on the spectrum, how they in some cases represent 40, I've seen as high as 50% of transgender, sudden onset transgender cases involved children that have mental health issues or might be somewhere beyond the spectrum. So, I mean, those are all questions that the church is going to have to face. And I think there are news stories rooted in all of those questions. And you can see the severity of this crisis in this Free Press article. And you can see the pain in the life of a mother and her family as they've tried to deal with this. At one point, she describes how there's always the possibility that a profoundly autistic child is going to end up accidentally killing themselves, throwing themselves in front of a car or running out in front of a car, throwing themselves out of a boat into a lake and drowning. For pastors, this is kind of like the situation of how do we handle the funerals of people who have committed suicide? I know there are theological questions there, but that's an issue that I think pastors have dealt with for decades, and I think they have a handle on it. What I'm saying is that one religion ghost in this story is that pastors are going to need to get their funeral acts together on this theodicy topic, this blaming God topic or putting God on trial. 
there's just so many issues that the church is going to have to deal with. I want to come back to one that you mentioned, because the scenario you outlined is exactly the scenario that my wife and I faced. We have a child grown now who is high-functioning Asperger's. They're on the spectrum. The terms change a lot. And he was going to school in the fourth grade at a Christian day school of our choice, and they not only were not able to handle it, they really mishandled it. And we were essentially, because of after he was diagnosed, we were essentially forced to the public school system, a pretty good one, albeit, but forced to the public school system because they had the resources and the personnel and the knowledge to handle him in the classroom at times. And they can accept the state funds for that. But we did not want to send our kids to public school. Yeah. And yet, because of the resources they had, we really had no choice. That's exactly the scenario I'm talking about, except the more someone moves into the spectrum where the symptoms are even stronger, the more fraught the questions become. And like I just said, the issues involving mental health, gender identity, family formation, whatever, all of those issues in public schools in most states in the union are only going to get more and more pronounced, which means I think you're going to see more Christian parents end up facing their pastors and the leaders of their schools and say, what are we supposed to do? Are we here in a homeschool situation when in reality this is beyond homeschooling? We need specialized care Yet, increasingly, that specialized care is going to come with state doctrines attached to it. What are we supposed to do? So that's the Christian school, the Christian daycare, the youth programs, Christian camps. Just think of all of the church programs and parachurch programs that this will affect. And one more thing listeners should remember, I don't have my finger on the study, but there's evidence that if you don't reach someone while they're in their teens, you may have lost your opportunity to convert them to Christianity, that the number of adult converts is much smaller than the number of converts who make decisions for Christ during their childhood or during their teenage years, which means to some degree, Any crisis that involves youth work has implications for the church that has to do with the next generation of Christians as well. It literally is a Great Commission challenge. I can't imagine that pastors haven't thought of this, but I can imagine that their denominations and their seminaries and their leadership may not be ready to help them much yet. And what I'm saying is, if you printed out this story and handed it to your pastor, if your pastor handed this to his denominational leaders, would they hide from these issues? Or is it time to try to do something or to find out at least what it's possible to try to do? Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. 
He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you for your time. I'm glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.